Coming up on Studio Berlin, how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting our lives. The fact is, no matter how old you are, no matter what your ancestry, no matter what your genetic makeup, you are all susceptible. The aim is to contain the virus, but how? The approach differs from country to country. How is Germany equipped to handle the crisis? Germany has a lot of hospitals, 1,900 hospitals, and a really good extensive and expensive healthcare system. So what can we do to slow down the spread of the coronavirus? So that information that somebody has got an infection is crucial for preventing ongoing spread. That's up next on Studio Berlin. Stay with us. Welcome to Studio Berlin, our weekly current affairs show here on KCRW Berlin. Each week, we take a closer look at the events and issues shaping our lives here in Germany's capital. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Today, we are talking about the coronavirus. It is a topic that is dominating our day-to-day lives. Thousands have died worldwide. Cases have been reported in at least 113 countries and territories, devastating global markets, and leading some countries to impose lockdowns and travel bans. This week, Chancellor Angela Merkel said, since there is no treatment or vaccine available, if nothing changes, 60 to 70 percent of Germany's population could be infected with the coronavirus. Joining me on the phone from Switzerland is Dr. Margaret Harris from the World Health Organization. Dr. Harris, thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you very much for having us on your program. This week, WHO categorized COVID-19 as a pandemic. We heard Chancellor Angela Merkel at the top of the show. With the numbers she cites, more than 58 million people in Germany have the potential to eventually be infected. Is this in line with what WHO is seeing, that that these could be the numbers? So the reason we characterized it as a pandemic is we're certainly seeing sustained transmission in a number of communities and a number of communities around the world. But the interesting thing about this virus is we have also seen that you can reverse the outbreak. So a study like that indicates a worst case scenario. That's essentially if nothing is done. And if you look at it, if nothing is done, 15% of people who get infected get the severe form. Now, in most countries, we're seeing most of those people survive, but it takes six weeks of intensive care. It takes round-the-clock care by a large team of of doctors, nurses, ancillary workers to keep each of those people going and ultimately surviving their disease. So if you have enormous numbers of cases, you will not have the ability to treat all those people, and you will see many, many more deaths. Similar to what we're seeing in Italy at this point. Certainly Italy's health system is overwhelmed and we do not want to see that happen in any other um, country. Italy's got a a strong health system according to our classifications and yet a strong health system can be overwhelmed uh, if you have these kind of numbers. You never want to be putting nurses and doctors in positions where they're having to make terrible decisions about who gets treated and who possibly can't be. But we should say, as you've alluded to as well, the majority of infected people have mild symptoms. But what is that tipping point when the virus becomes dangerous? 
So it's how it responds to your immune or how your immune system responds to it, or whether you have damage in your lungs. This virus likes to make it home in your lungs. Even people who have mild symptoms still have lung disease. If you if you do an X-ray, you will see um, marked lung changes. That's why at one point, when the Chinese didn't have weren't able to do enough tests, they simply started classifying people by what they could see on chest radiography. So even people with mild symptoms have um, deep-seated cough, it's a dry cough, and quite a lot of them describe breathlessness, which is a very, very unpleasant symptom. But with people with lung damage, people who've already got lungs that aren't functioning terribly well during normal times, and I'm talking about people who are smokers, for instance, but also people who've got other lung diseases like bronchitis or heart disease where you're not really able to move the blood around well enough and, and keep the oxygen going around your body. Those people are in a situation where an attack on their lungs will end up being a severe disease and can be fatal. How important is it that coronavirus cases that that they're detected early because we have seen this shortage of testing or testing that's really targeted to people who have just been in infected areas or who have been in contact with people who are infected. So how important is it that people are tested? It is very important. I mean, the focus of our strategies are detect, prevent, protect. So really the essence is detecting. You can't, you can prevent generally by improving hand hygiene, by improving environmental hygiene, by social distancing, yes. But to really be targeted, you need to know where your virus is. So you need to be able to test people and then you need to understand who they've been exposed to, so where they've gone and ask all members of the community who may have been in contact to identify themselves as such and to take precautions. So self-isolate, ensure that they do not touch other people, that they do not touch other members of the family because much of the spread goes within households. So that information that somebody has got an infection is crucial for preventing ongoing spread. And we're talking about some information that's key to know. What is the misinformation out there that you've been trying to target? Oh, goodness, we have so many myths. One of the biggest problems is there are lots of people out there um, putting out myths about particular ethnic groups. We've been hearing initially, because the outbreak started in Asia, people were targeting people of Asian ancestry living in Europe. And this is beyond crazy. Some of the weirdest um, myths about whether you genetically are in a position to get it or not is spreading around on the internet. And the fact is, no matter how old you are, no matter what your ancestry, no matter what your genetic makeup, you are all susceptible. Let's compare some of the approaches we've been seeing in different European countries. In Italy, the whole country is on lockdown. U.S. President Donald Trump suspended travel from EU countries. Should more countries be taking more sweeping measures, instituting lockdowns, cancelling schools? I mean, there's not really any one best approach, is there? So each country takes its own approach. And we've seen quite different approaches in China, which has dramatically brought its numbers down, and Korea, where they used high-tech approaches, where they uh, informed the community, sometimes so transparently the information was a little bit too much for some people, but they've informed people about where somebody who has a case has been so that the 
anybody else who's been there is aware that they may be a contact. And they've also done things like provide drive-through testing and they've taken a lot of different measures to enable people to do what we call social distancing, which means remaining at least one metre from all other people and not physically coming into contact with anyone so that you don't spread it. Um, you mentioned travel restrictions. We're not keen on you know, um, big uh, travel restrictions because we feel that countries tend to focus on, say, shutting a border instead of really looking at what they need to be doing with their communities and what they need to be doing with their hospitals and their health systems. And that also stimulate fear so there's there's a problem risk that people may start to hide their symptoms because they wish to travel. You mentioned China, the origin of the outbreak being Wuhan. Looking at the latest numbers there, their measures have been effective. We can see improvement there? Oh, we can see dramatic improvement. In Wuhan, the epicenter, they're reporting cases in single-digit figures. And I'm sure you recall a couple of weeks ago, they were looking at thousands of cases a day. So that is remarkable. I, I, it's really, I don't think we've seen it in the history of, of a human um, epidemics. They're not out of the woods yet. It's certainly not over there yet, but it's, they have shown that if you really involve the entire community, if you as a government and you as authorities say, this is the thing we focus on, we are going to stop this, you can do it. Let's talk about the mortality rate. Where yes. does it stand now and how will it change? Well, so we are seeing very different mortality rates. So in the Italian outbreak, sadly, many people are dying. They've got a, a case fatality rate of, I believe, at least over 5%. I believe it's the highest. Korea has a much lower mortality rate, below 1%. And the difference there probably is that they have really gone out there and found every case. And they... And when they've found those people, they've ensured that they get to treatment early. So even though we don't have a specific treatment, we can give good supportive care. And I don't have, we don't have all the evidence there, but certainly if you are really doing your utmost to ensure that you find everybody who's potentially ill, you've got a much better chance of being able to get the people who are developing that severe form into good care early. Are we seeing accurate reporting of cases from all countries? How does it differ? Every country reports to us, but we get different um, data at different times. And some countries just struggle, really, to be able to provide data. They may not have the internet connections. They may struggle with the format. It, it, quite often, countries are criticized, and the immediate assumption is they're hiding data. Most of the time, we, we simply find that it's a struggle to produce timely data because of the uh, logistical or the uh, simply lack of testing facilities or the struggle that their health systems under. For all those reasons, you may not get data as quickly as you'd like it. Last thing, you were on the front lines with the World Health Organization handling the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone in 2014. Now you're at the WHO headquarters in Geneva. How do you strike a balance between being cautious and doing what you can to protect yourself and your family, but also not being paranoid. How is that balance struck, in your opinion? I think it's experience, frankly. I mean, when I first went to Sierra Leone, I was 
very nervous. I knew I was facing a, a very dangerous and deadly disease. But after I'd spent some time in the villages and I had been around people who had Ebola, but I took all the precautions, number one being simply hand washing, number two being social distancing. So I remember seeing a little boy, a young 12-year-old boy who had probable Ebola, it hadn't been diagnosed and was very, very ill and was so weak he couldn't get into the ambulance. All I wanted to do was go and help him and pick him up and, and, you know, hold him in my arms and comfort him. But I knew I must not do that because at that time we had no treatment for Ebola. If I got Ebola, my organization would be obliged to evacuate me and waste a lot of time and energy on me instead of spending that time on the the people in the country that needed it. So having had that experience and, and knowing that if I really am utterly rigid and fastidious about personal protection, personal hygiene, I can stay safe. I know that I can offer that advice to others and that it does work important lessons reflecting on Ebola as we try to wrap our heads around the coronavirus pandemic. Margaret Harris from the World Health Organization, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for a very interesting interview, Sylvia. Dr. Margaret Harris is from the World Health Organization. She joined me on the phone from Switzerland. You're listening to Studio Berlin here on KCRW Berlin. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we're going to zero in on Germany and how the federal government has been managing the crisis. Seven women give voice to the voiceless. When I started my work and would speak to the police, they would say, oh, come on, women don't feel loved if they're not beaten. Since the 16th century, it has been an excuse. Seven by Paula Sismar, Catherine Filou, Gail Kriegel, Carol K. Mack, Ruth Margraff, Anna DeVere-Smith, and Susan Yankowitz. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Catch L.A. Theatre Works, Sunday nights on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. We've been talking about how the coronavirus has developed from an outbreak to an epidemic to what's now being called a pandemic. I want to welcome our second guest, Eric Kirschbaum, a fellow Studio Berlin host who reported on the coronavirus for the LA Times. Welcome, Eric. Hi there. The first case of the coronavirus was reported in Bavaria on January 27th, but it wasn't until six weeks later when there was the first death in Germany. Other countries saw fatalities much sooner. Why do you think there was that discrepancy here? That's a really good question. I mean, Germany has a remarkably low mortality rate something I looked into this week, and Germany has a lot of hospitals, 1,900 hospitals, and a really good extensive and expensive healthcare system. There's 400 Gesundheitsämter all across the country with a lot of power and authority to shut schools down, tell people to stay home. And it just seems like a really, real organized country. And they were ready for the virus. They got alerted when Italy had already um, reported its first cases. So they started taking action right away, and they just were well-prepared And they've probably had a bit of luck so far as well. Yeah, you mentioned in your reporting that Germany has protections for workers. People feel more comfortable here taking sick days. Does that also have something to do with it? I think that's absolutely a reason. Um, Germans have an average of 17 sick days a year. So people are calling in sick when they have a cold or a flu and they're not worried about possibly losing their jobs. There's a lot of worker protection here. So that takes pressure off of people who might 
be worried about their job. Nobody in Germany is really worried about their job the way in other countries. So Germans who aren't feeling well can stay at home, and that also probably helps to contain the virus. What's going to become more of a trend or actually a necessity is virtual attendance, whether that's classes on college campuses, people being awarded degrees via teleconference or attending soccer games. Is this our new world order for the next few months? It seems like it. It seems unavoidable. Um, That's the way things are going. I mean, things are changing by the hour, by the day. One thing that really interests me, though, is the the senior citizens, the elderly people, they're the most vulnerable to the coronavirus. And um, I was talking to some people about that this week, and it seems that the war experience, these are people who survived the war, the older people now in Berlin, and they know how to just um, sit tight and stay home and avoid danger. So it's an interesting theory. I don't know how much they're holding up, but it's going to be interesting to see if Germany can continue to have such a a low um, death rate compared to other countries. What we saw in past weeks, there was this urgent buying, what's called in German Hamsterkäufe. We saw empty shelves for a while, but as German health minister Jens Spahn said, the stockpiling slowed, shelves were mostly restocked. Do you think people in general are keeping a calm head here in Germany? It, It seems like by and large they are. I mean, people are snapping up and hoarding toilet paper all around the world. I've been reading stories in California as well. People are hoarding their toilet paper um, but yeah, it, it seems in general that people are reacting reasonably and staying calm. I mean, what, what choice do you have? What else can you do to stay calm? And I think the media in Germany is an important thing. Um, German, most Germans get their news from public broadcasting, so there's less of a sensational element. I think a lot of Americans get their news from commercial networks that really need to scare people to keep the ratings high. So that's an important factor as well. But that's what's so hard to know. Is there reason to be a little scared? I think everybody has to sort of make a decision, smart and prudent things to do. I mean, I've been washing my hands a lot more for weeks, and I think this is a good time to reflect and to think and to stand back. And I think a lot of prudent things you can do, just staying away from other people is is smart. Not going to a soccer game is a smart thing to do, and just staying home and reading more. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think, as several people have pointed out, it is a luxury, though, to be able to stay at home. In some countries, like the U.S., where workers are expected to go to work, you know, they can't stay home and and stay with a book. The German government is already making a lot of money available for companies that are going to put their workers on short time shifts and things like that. So, yeah, there's going to be a huge economic impact from all this. And we don't really know. Nobody really knows yet how big the impact is going to be. And it's going to depend on how long it lasts. But yeah, it seems to get worse every day, though. Thanks so much for making the time, Eric. Thank you. Eric Hirschbaum is a fellow Studio Berlin host. He's also been reporting on the coronavirus for the LA Times. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll be hearing from a German business economist who has been based in China for the past two years. We'll talk about his personal story as he made his way from Europe and now heads back to China. That's up next on Studio Berlin. Stay with us. On last week's Wait, Wait, we asked Karamo Brown, the guy who makes everybody cry on Queer Eye, if he could coax some tears from Joe Biden. It takes nothing at all. I would just be like black people, and he'd be like South Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. You got to laugh or cry, and we guarantee opportunities to do both on this week's Wait, Wait with special guest Big Boy from NPR. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, every Sunday on KCRW Berlin. Welcome back to Studio Berlin. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. 
We've been talking about the coronavirus and how it's had a firm grip on our daily lives. Now we'll hear from a 54-year-old German business economist who was in the middle of it all when the virus started spreading rapidly in China by the end of January. Joining me on the phone is Klaus Warmedinger. He works for a global appliance company based in Sweden, and he's been living and working in China for the past two years. Klaus, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Olivia. Klaus, when the coronavirus started spreading in China, you were actually vacationing in Japan, and then you returned to Guangzhou for a couple of days before flying out to Europe. What was it like being back in China? What were you seeing? Yeah, rapid change. When we flew out to Japan on January 20 for a ski vacation, everything was kind of normal life in, in China. And uh, we had a nice uh, week skiing there, and we were following the news, obviously, in China, and things turned quickly into a very different uh, situation. So we came back a week later. Um, last minute, we still bought some uh, masks in, in Japan as they have been sold out already in, in China within a couple of days because it was already mandatory then to on the airplane to, to have a mask and also when you use uh, the transportation in China. So all that happened within a week. So uh, really a rapid change that we've been seeing there. And you only stayed in China for two days before flying to Sweden? Yeah, that's right. So we arrived back in China and then all the things were in place already. We, we had a lot of temperature measurements uh, already at the airport and away from the airport, our apartment, in front of the apartment. And it was still the New Year break in China at that, at that time. So, so not a lot to do. We pl- were planning to Hong Kong a few days after. And then the news came that uh, all the Hong Kong is closing all the borders to China. So then we, just two, three hours after arriving, we booked a flight to Europe to just escape <laughs> this situation, which felt quite dramatic at that point. And what did you do when you got off the plane? You flew into Stockholm. Were you then quarantined there? Yeah, that was also interesting because in China, the, all those measures have been put in place really rapidly. And then we flew via Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, and uh, when we get off the plane, there was absolutely nothing, no no health screening uh, and, and no, no checkpoint whatsoever. And then from Turkey to Stockholm, also there's no, obviously, then you're within Europe. Anyhow, no checks. So we just which had a normal trip to Sweden without any any checks or anything. Did you? In- which was a surprising for us. Right. So did you put yourself in quarantine then when you got to Stockholm? Yeah, we we are in, in, in a lucky situation. We we have a summer place and on a small island outside of Stockholm, so we stayed there. As our company already companies are sometimes a bit faster than than uh, government. They had already quarantine rules, so I was not allowed to enter the office at that point already. So we stayed basically self-quarantined in the place for around about two weeks. In these times, it's easy to get a bit paranoid. Where was your fear level at this point? Were, Were you getting concerned or managing to keep a cool head? Luckily, I'm not yet in the main risk group of this virus, so so the personal fear was to get contaminated was was not so big. But of course, uh, all the surrounding was very concerning. We, if you sit at home and, and you listen to the news and, and how things are getting worse, of course, it's, it's concerning, but not, not personal fear, no. Klaus, you are actually on your way back to China, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I'm flying, flying back next Monday. Okay, so how do you feel flying in? What can you expect when you land? That's changing on a daily basis right now. I just got two hours ago, now it's formally confirmed that Germany is also on the list of the countries 
where uh, a 14 days quarantine is mandatory if you arrive back in China. So, so the situation has turned quite a bit. While China, uh, the situation in China is, is much under control, I would say now, with, with very few cases uh, on a daily basis. So most of the cases in China now are imported cases from, from other parts of the world. And, and Germany is considered now one of the countries in that risk area. So yeah, 14 days quarantine is what expects me there. And then you need to submit uh, in WeChat, which is close, similar to WhatsApp. You have to submit online your track record of your stays in the last 14 days. And then you, you get a dot system with green, orange, or red. Uh, when you arrive there, um, based on what you report, and then decided if it's a home quarantine or if you will, will go into a controlled quarantine, which is organized by the officials there. So you don't know yet if you will be classified for a home quarantine or a <laughs> state quarantine? Based on current situation, I hope I will be qualified for home quarantine. Okay. But you, you, you know, it can, can change. <laughs> In those times, the situation is changing really rapidly. Thank you so much, Klaus, for your time. Thank you, Sylvia. What a pleasure. Klaus Warmendinger is a German business economist for a global electronic appliance company. He's been living and working in China for the past couple of years. And that's it for today's show. Make sure to tune into Studio Berlin next week. I'm your host, Sylvia Cunningham. Have a good week and stay healthy.